Welcome to the Programming Podcast. Here you can learn about computer science concepts in a brief and accessible way. I'm your host, Minko Gadget. Hello, everyone. Today in the Programming Podcast, we're going to talk about static and dynamic systems. So in the real world, we're usually talking about these things and referring to them as predictable versus flexible. Now let's think about something really predictable. You have a predictable day-to-day schedule where you're waking up at 6.30, you're working out after that, drinking your coffee and going to the office. You stay there and at certain points, let's say at 5.30 or 6, you go home just by taking the exact same bus or driving the exact same route. So this is a really, really, really predictable way of living, right? And it has its advantages. You can optimize a lot for the future. You know exactly where you're going to be and what you're going to do. On the other side, you may have to deal with some uncertainties. You may have to deal with some exceptions, some things that, well, don't happen every day. For example, imagine you have a doctor's appointment. If you have this really predictable schedule where everything has been scheduled pretty tightly, it might be hard for you to take enough time to go to the doctor. So you'd have to make changes in your predictable schedule. Well, in programming languages, we have something quite similar. Actually, this is typical not only for programming languages, but for frameworks as well. However, in the world of computer science, we call this static versus dynamic. It is applicable, as I mentioned, to programming languages, to frameworks, and even build systems. Let's first put it into the context of programming languages. Now, let's imagine an axis. On the left part of this axis, we have very static languages. And on the right part of the axis, we have really dynamic languages. Probably you remember from the last episode when we discussed static versus dynamic and uh, strongly versus weakly typed, what this means, but don't worry if you haven't uh, went through this episode. We're going to capture this in a couple of minutes today as well. So on the left side of the spectrum, we have the static languages and some of these languages would be, let's say, Idris, Haskell, and Rust. Probably Idris is the most static out of all of these. But Haskell is quite static as well. Haskell's type system, well, it is the state-of-the-art type theory research. Haskell's type system doesn't allow us to do much, actually. We cannot do like anything we want, especially around side effects. Side effects are these things in our programs that are destroying the mapping of our functions to pure mathematical functions. They're making our programs impure. This means that, well, our program is now doing something outside of its own world. For example, it is saving stuff on the disk or sending a network message. In Haskell, we'll have to deal with such side effects by using monads. Monads are quite powerful, but at the same time quite restrictive. But again, they make our program much more predictable. And they help us figure out and find issues in our software. A lot of folks who are getting started with Rust, they complain that it is really not ergonomic. They have to write a lot of source code in order to enable certain behaviors. And well, probably that's true. I'm not a Rust expert, but I have read some of the papers behind the Rust research. One of the goals of Rust is to enforce memory management using the type system. 
Imagine, imagine you're creating a C++ program. There you have to manually allocate memory and deallocate this memory when you're no longer using it in order to not create memory leaks. However, Rust wants to do that automatically for you and it would want to figure out exactly when certain piece of memory is used or no longer used as part of the build process. Well, this means that it is going to enforce certain restrictions on how you could use the language, right? These restrictions are going to maybe somehow impact your development experience, but at the same time, they're going to improve your productivity by using a lower level language and not thinking about memory management at all. Further, on the right side of the spectrum, we have a little bit more dynamic languages. These are Java and C++. Even more further right, on the dynamics part of the spectrum, we have TypeScript, which has really powerful type system as well, and Go. Go is probably one of the most dynamic languages that we talked about so far. Not that it doesn't have static type enforcement, but its type system is not really expressive. For example, it misses some essential things, such as type parameters or generics. If we go even further, on the right part of the spectrum of dynamic languages, we have languages such as Ruby and JavaScript. Now let us compare two languages from this dynamic and static axis. Let us compare TypeScript and JavaScript. There was a research published some time back by researchers from Microsoft and from the academia. It was called to type or not to type. Pretty much uh, they took a bunch of JavaScript projects from GitHub and they looked at their issue tracker. And they tried to figure out how many of these issues in the issue tracker would have been called by the TypeScript type system at build time. And they would have never reached production. And they would have never had to be reported on GitHub. So based on their research, 15%, one five of these bugs would have been detectable at build time. And this is something that I often like to say. The second best thing for you as a developer is to catch your errors at build time. Of course, the best thing is to create bug-free software, but we all know that this is really hard with all this complexity in the modern software development. So just take advantage of your type system. It is really powerful and is there to help you. Another example. So this, this is, for example, for quality of software. Uh, TypeScript's type system can really help you to catch a lot of bugs ahead of time. But strictness and static behavior could also help you a lot for performance as well. This is mostly because different compilers can optimize your program just by looking at the source code. Let's look at a particular example. In this case, we're going to talk about Angular. I'm sure that this behavior is probably common across many other technologies as well, but Angular is my area of expertise. So in Angular, we have this zero overhead compile time internet serialization. Imagine you would want to translate your websites to five different languages. What would you do in the most general case? Well, you have either, either like five different JSON files, for example, and a bunch of data bindings or uh, different placeholders, and you let the framework to perform either 
change detection or reconciliation when you change the language, right? So for each different string from your translation, you would be creating a placeholder or a data binding so that when the user changes the language, you can replace this string with the right representation from the selected language by the user. Well, this may sound fine at first, but imagine you have a really large page. If each one of these strings is going to be representing a separate data binding or something that the framework would have to traverse and compare with its previous value, this could be quite time consuming. This could significantly impact your runtime behavior. On the other side, these individual data bindings associated with the strings that are representing your translations, they're going to add up a little bit to the JavaScript bundle because, well, this is an instruction for the framework that data binding needs to be performed and that uh, there is something that needs to be checked. And these tiny instructions, when we start applying them for like hundreds of thousands of different translations, well, they are going to impact the size of your application. And from there, indirectly, uh, the user's startup performance of your application. So what we do in Angular instead is to first ask all developers to annotate uh, their strings that they would want to have translation stuff with the internalization marker which is just an i18n attribute uh, to an HTML element. Right after that, we have an extractor that is going to find all such different strings and extract them into a file. Later on, you can give this file to your translators and they can produce n different translations for different languages. Finally, when you build your application, you just specify a target language. And what the Angular compiler is going to do is replace all these different strings with their translation that you have selected. This way, you have zero runtime overhead internationalization because everything has been happened at build time. The final example that I would want to give you is related to build systems, although it is really tightly coupled to TypeScript as well. Imagine you're developing a TypeScript program. The framework here doesn't really matter. You just have a dynamic import from module A to module B. If you have this dynamic import and you specify it that you would want to import module B using its relative path, Inside of the resolve callback of the promise from the import, you would get an object where the interface of module B is available in your text editor. You'll be pretty much able to type module dot and see all different exported symbols from module B. See how powerful is that? It's not only convenient that it can catch some bugs at build time, for example, if you try to access a property or an export that doesn't really exist, but also it is convenient at development time. The text editor or like ID, the one that you're using, will be able to give you auto-completion suggestions. Now on the other side, imagine that instead of having a static relative path with a string literal, you specify a dynamic expression, something like import from local storage dot get item something. 
Well, this is not information that your that the TypeScript compiler can know ahead of time. It has no idea what is the value of the local storage value associated with a particular key. So in this case, the module that is passed as a parameter to the resolve callback is going to have type any. And this is not going to provide you any value during development nor at compile time. Unless, of course, you perform any kind of manual casting, which is usually far from ideal because these are things that are harder to verify in the future. Imagine you want to change your import and import as something else. Well, you'd have to remember to update this casted module. Well, that was pretty much everything. I would apply links to the resources that I mentioned today, in particular to type or not to type, and also to a really great talk, which is called Power in Constraints. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave a review on Google Podcasts, iTunes, or any of the other podcast providers you use. Thank you for listening. Till next time. To learn about new episodes, you can follow me on Twitter at mgetchup. The list of all resources and recordings is available at podcast.mgetchup.com. Thanks for listening.